Well, it is 11 o'clock, 11.01, actually. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Melanie Alnwick. We are here with the Mansion Murders podcast and my colleague, Paul Wagner. Uh, Paul, crazy week, I think, is the only way to describe it. We had heard, Melanie, the day before uh, Darren was going to testify uh, that he was going to do it. Uh, I got it from a good source that it was going to happen. And so when they announced in court that it was going to happen, I wasn't surprised. Although reporters jumped up, ran out into the hallway, I was and one of those. tweeted it right away. Well, I mean, you had given me the heads up that it might be happening. Yeah. But, you know, it's one of those things until you actually see that person walk to the stand, yeah. put up their hand, and take the oath. Yeah. That uh, you don't know 100% for sure it's going to go down. Well, Judith Pipe stood up, the defense attorney, and looked at the judge and said, we're, we're going to put Mr. Wint on the stand. And all of us reporters just looked at each other and went with big eyes and, wow, it's, it's really going to happen. It's one of those moments. There haven't been a lot of made-for-TV moments, I think you might call them, in this trial. Because trials are generally not as dramatic as you see them in movies and on television but that that was a dramatic moment and it's very rare for the for defendants to take the stand in in many trials uh they just rely on their defense attorneys and whatever the defense attorneys can get from questioning and you never see someone take the stand so uh, the fact that he did it was pretty stunning so the first thing that happened i noticed was that the judge before she let him take the stand questioned him outside of the jury do you understand what you're getting into do you understand that you are opening the door perhaps to some of your priors are you ready to do this she wanted to make sure that this was 100 percent his decision and he was ready for what was to come yeah that's standard we see that all the time uh, if someone's going to take the stand so the judge has to make sure that he understands exactly what he's up against so your observation my observation was that he pretty much had an answer for everything. Exactly. Everything the prosecution had presented as evidence, he had a story behind it. Some of them were unbelievable, outlandish, incredulous might be the reaction. But if you're the jury and you're sitting there, you might say, okay, makes sense may seem crazy, but okay, I get your story. Well, we also know that he's had three years to come up with the story. And Laura Bach, the prosecutor, made it very clear to the jury that he had access to all the information that the prosecutors have turned over to the defense over the three-year period. And uh, so one thing that did happen yesterday is out of the earshot of the jury, Judith Pipe wanted the jury to know that Darren had every right to that information and he had every right to sit through the trial. So when the cross-examination ended, the judge turned to the jury and said, I have this instruction for you. And she said exactly that, that Darren Wint had the right to all that information and that that was his constitutional right and there was nothing wrong with it. So I don't even really know where to begin in terms of his story. I know. Uh, We thought maybe we would... Start. Should we start with his alibi first? He was missing yeah. for 36 hours. Nobody knew where he was. We know his girlfriend was texting him, fiance, trying to reach him, saying, I just need to know where you are. I just need to know you're okay. We know his stepmother testified. She was worried about him because he'd never stayed out before. 
and they couldn't reach him. And I believe we also saw some phone records that his sister in Guyana was wondering where he was. That's right. She reached out to Vanessa. That's right. Yeah. So this story about Ed came out. Uh, This is a story that we had not heard before. Yeah. Um, uh, we've been surprised through this trial, even though we've been looking into it for three years. We've learned some things that we never knew before, and here's one of them. And this is his alibi that he was at Ed's house at 16 Atlantic Street Southeast, and it's right next to or right behind Freddie's used tires. Um, and that he said that he had uh, gone there on uh, actually Durrell took him there. Right. So so it starts with the setup. Yeah. The alleged setup. Yeah. That he met with his brother. And Darrell told him, hey, I have a job for you on the 13th of May. Meet me with your van at 6 a.m. outside PCM. PCM is the company that Stefan worked for. And we learned that uh, Darren worked there briefly at one point in time. And Darrell had applied for a job there. Okay. So that was supposed to be the meetup spot at right. 6 a.m. And then the plan changed. So Darren shows up in the minivan. Darrell says, change of plans, bro. We don't need you. We just need your van. But I'm going to pay you 300 bucks for the van instead of the $100 you thought you were going to earn that day. For doing drywall work. So he's a 30-minute job. Right. right. So he says that he is depressed because he wasn't working that day. And that's how he ends up at Ed's house. Now, Darrell drives him there and takes the van, right? Conveniently drives off with Darren's phone because Darren forgets that his phone is in the van. So he can't call anybody all day long, he says. And he's just hanging out there, yep, hanging out with Ed, fixing some cars in the front street. Now, he knows Ed, right, because uh, Ed apparently used to do work on his van, maybe even sold him the van, but he had brought the van to Ed from time to time for Ed to fix it. That was the story. But as we conveniently learned, Ed is dead. Right. And so Ed... Ed can't corroborate any of this. Right. He can't take the stand. Kind of a convenient excuse there, isn't it? Convenient. Yeah. So we're to believe, the jury is to believe, that Darrell told him, just hang out here. I'll come back. Right. He was supposed to come back later that night on the 13th. But never shows. So Darren says he starts to drink around 5 o'clock. Right. But he, he only has $5. <laughs> he doesn't explain where he gets the liquor, how he pays for it, or anything like that. But suddenly he has enough to drink that he gets so drunk that he passes out, falls asleep on the couch, wakes up around 1 in the morning, feeling kind of sick to his stomach, goes back to sleep, wakes up again at 10 in the morning. And then all of a sudden, who shows up outside the house? But Darrell in a two hundred thousand dollar turbo Porsche. Right. And he doesn't think that's odd. He doesn't even ask him about the Porsche. And the whole time he is at Ed's, he never tries to reach out to Darrell. Where are you? Where's my van? He never tries to reach out to his family. He doesn't even leave. He he could. He could have gone anywhere. Now these are these are observations you and I are making, but neither the prosecution nor the defense asked him certain questions like, well, why didn't you go and borrow somebody's phone and make a phone call? That question wasn't even asked. (laughs) Well, I suppose the jury is left to infer some of those things. I mean, pretty clear during Laura Bach's cross-examination, she didn't believe 
any of this. You'd think that Judith Pipe would say something to him like, why, or no, well, you'd think Laura Bach would have said, well, why didn't you just go borrow somebody's phone and make a call, right? And then Judith Pipe would have said to him, uh, yeah, the same, the same thing, but she probably already knows the answer to the question, which he can't explain it. So, Because you're never going to answer a question. If you're the defense attorney, you're not going to ask a question of your client if you know that the answer is going to hurt you. So that's his alibi for where he was. Before they even got to that, remember that there was testimony that um, his brother's phone, Darrell's phone, pinged in Silver Spring. We know the phone was in Silver Spring on the 13th. How does Darren explain that? So, apparently... And there was testimony that his phone records show that it was never near 3201 Woodland Drive. Correct. So how does Darren explain that? They went to some guy's house in Silver Spring first, before they went to Ed's. And then they went to get something to eat, right? Yeah. Before they ended up at Ed's. So that's how he would explain that... Darrell's phone pinged in another, Silver Spring. And it was interesting excuse. because yeah. because uh, Laura Bach, she said, you know his phone is nowhere near 3201 Woodland Drive on May 14th, don't you? Yes. You got the phone records for Daryl's phone. Yes. They show his phone was nowhere near 3201 Woodland Drive on May 13th or May 14th. You knew you had to come up with an explanation. I, and he says, I don't have an explanation. And, we're, and now we're stopping in Silver Spring? Yes, ma'am, because that's the truth. Yeah. I know. So, it's, uh, he's thought of everything, hasn't he? So now they end up at the house. And there's a lot of explanations for all of this evidence now that puts him at the house. Right. He never tried to deny that he was at the house. Right. Right. So the story he tells is that they pull up in the Porsche to the front of the house. They both get out. They go to the front door. Darrell has a key to the house. He goes in first. Darren goes in after him. Was he wearing gloves? He was Doesn't not wearing know. gloves. Didn't see him. Didn't Couldn't tell oh, whether he was yeah. wearing gloves in Darren the car. Darren says he wasn't wearing gloves, but Darrell goes upstairs. All of a sudden, he comes back with a pizza, a cold pizza, and, and he's, he's wearing, wearing gloves. Dirty construction gloves is how they describe them. And hands him the pizza. And he eats a piece of cold pizza. Oh, wait, wait. But we have to say, he doesn't just hand him the pizza, right? So we're to believe that he brings the pizza box down with the dirty construction gloves, opens it up for his brother, reaches in, gives him a piece of pizza, and then doesn't do anything. Stands there and watches him eat it. And then Darren says he put the crust back in the box and didn't touch the box, left it open, and walked away. But Judith Pipe said, you weren't trying to avoid touching the box, were you? And he said, no. Another question was, didn't you see the blood that was on the box? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of dramatic, I yeah, think. Yeah, right? Laura Bach asked him that, and he says, no, the box was always open. Yeah, he said that that would have been gross. He agreed that would have been gross to eat a piece of pizza out of a bloody pizza box. But he admits that he ate it, and that's how his DNA got there. Okay, so then... We got this phone thing going on again. Yeah. So he's conveniently left his phone in the van. Right. When he was at Ed's house. But, now. But he gets the. Wait. Oh, but the van is oh, missing. 
Yeah, the, right. Somehow the, somehow man, the phone somehow the winds phone up in, in the, the Porsche. Porsche. So, so his brother, his brother remembers to bring him his phone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ditch the van, but I'll, oh, let me make sure I bring my brother his phone. My dear, dear brother who I care about so much. Isn't it funny how we're sitting there writing this all down, listening to it, and we're going, okay, okay, okay. But now you and I are talking about it going, what? Right. Wait a minute. Okay, so the phone, he takes, Darrell takes his phone out of the van and then brings it in the Porsche. In the Porsche. But then when they go to the house on Woodland Drive, they're going there for to finish up a, so, so Darrell says, I will take you to your van, but I got a 30 minutes, I need 30 minutes to finish up this drywall job, and you're going to come with me and help me out. Yeah. So they go to the house, and then for some reason, D- Darren leaves his phone in the Porsche. Again, right. this, this precious phone that is basically his lifeline to everything. Yeah. So Darrell then tells him, meet me in the garage. So Darren says he never went anywhere else in the house. He just only went in, that in little the, side. just the small dining yeah. room. The, you guys haven't seen the diagram of the house, but they've shown it to the jury. And when you walk in the front door, it's just to the left. And he says that's the only place he went. So he says he goes out to the porch. He gets his phone. He walks around to the garage. At this point, Laura Bach says, you, you heard the testimony from the two people who worked at the Australian ambassador's residence, right? He says, yes. And you heard the description of somebody who... Sounded just like you, right? He says, yes. She says, that was you, right? He goes, yeah, that was me. Yeah, doesn't deny it. Doesn't deny it. Plausible deniability. So he goes into the garage. And the garage door just miraculously just suddenly comes opens up, up for right? right? Because right. the big question was, did he have the garage door opener right. in his hand? And we know a garage door opener was introduced into evidence, but no fingerprints or DNA were ever found on it. And the two people from the ambassador's residence couldn't say whether or not they could see right. an, a, an opener in his hand. Right. Okay, so we're to believe that Darrell is now inside the garage and opens the door for Darren. Right. He goes in. Oh, and don't forget, he's in the garage and he's still looking for Wi-Fi. Right? Yes. He's still yeah. looking for Wi-Fi so he can try to reach Vanessa, yeah. the love of his life. So the question Laura said is, well, did you get onto the Wi-Fi? He goes, no, I saw it pop up on the phone, but it was locked and I couldn't get into it. So then Darrell shows up in the garage. Keep in mind that Darren also says he never left the garage. He never went into the basement. He can't explain how his DNA got on the knife in the basement. That's the one thing he cannot can. explain, right. right? He says he's still in the garage. Darrell suddenly hands him a hard hat and a vest. And Darren says he thought that was odd because you would wear that at a construction site but not inside a house. But he still puts it on willingly, which, by the way, yeah. that's the other thing that we learned during cross-examination was that when Darren worked for PCM, he was fired. And he was fired for an OSHA violation because he refused to wear a hard hat. He loved his dreads. He didn't want to mess them up. He refused to wear a hard hat. Yeah, when his brother... Now, you heard that testimony. Did, did he actually say that on the stand? He, uh, She led him into it, and yeah. he, he agreed. He did. He did. They didn't want to mess up his dreads. Well, no, but she he didn't say that he didn't want to mess up his dreads. She was talking about, you like your dreads. I mean, you've you've worn extensions in your dreads before. You asked that guy, Garnett, yeah. if, if you could borrow some of his hair for extensions. You even wore your mother's hair as dreads extensions. Okay, that's... <laughs> 
I have not he, heard and that. he said yes. You heard that yes. testimony. So I did he, not hear he that. He worn his mother's hair as, as Dresden Just to remind people, uh, Melanie and I are splitting up the trial. So Melanie's in the morning and I'm in the afternoon. Right. So, so that's he, why we're hearing, she's hearing something that I'm not hearing. So you are you are technically correct in that he did not say be, why he refused to wear the hard hat. But she was leading in that direction about his, his dreads, his hair, how much he liked them, how much he was proud of them. And he admitted he was fired because he wouldn't put on the hard hat. But yet his brother, who has now gotten into him into something, that he's so angry with his brother, he wouldn't show him his van. Here, put this hat on. Okay, sure. Yeah. And he has to explain that because his hair was in the hat. Was in the hat. Okay. Then he also has to have some explanation for the vest. He puts the vest on. Right. Then Darrell tells him, I'm about to unload, unload the, house. the house. What's that, Darren? He says, oh, he's going to steal. He's going to burglarize the house. He says, oh, I didn't want any part of that. So he storms out. He leaves the garage. The question is, of course, how did the garage door then come open? Right. We don't right. know that. We don't know. So he then leaves. He couldn't explain that. Yeah, he uh, can't explain that. But he leaves. And then he says he starts to walk. And Laura Box says, well, where did you go? He says, I turned left. She goes, okay, so where did that go to? Mm-hmm. He says, I walked up to a light. Okay, where'd you go from there? So if you know the neighborhood, you know that that sounds correct. Okay, because mm-hmm. you walk right. up that street, you get to Cleveland Avenue. And he kept saying he was by a school, which you have to wonder if he just got that from testimony because... The oyster school the oyster is at school. the bottom of right. Cleveland Avenue, right? And then connects to right. Calvert Street. So he says he walks down looking for a bus stop. And she says, well, you didn't see a bus stop that whole way? He says, no. He gets down by the school, and who pulls up? Darrell in the Porsche. In the Porsche, in the $200,000 Porsche. He wants nothing to do with because it is connected to something bad he doesn't want to be involved in, but he agrees to get in the Porsche. With his vest on? Yes. He's still wearing the vest. Now, he said that that Darrell was wearing a vest, That's too. right. That's right. So this feeds right into his story, right? Because he says he gets in and he lowers the backrest. Right, because he's still sick from drinking. And he wants to lay down. So right. he lowers that. And then they head off towards Maryland. She says, well, how did you get there? He goes, oh, I don't know. So, But we just went to Maryland. So he has to make this work with the testimony from the man who saw him right. on New York Avenue, or allegedly saw him on New York Avenue in the Porsche driving outbound on New York Avenue. And that's Andrew Zirin, and he was on the stand before you got there one morning. He was a quite a colorful witness. I did hear his testimony. You you, you did hear part of it. Okay, so you were sitting back behind me before before he got there. Yeah, he he was a colorful witness. Yeah, well. Because he had to explain why the Porsche stood out to him. And he said, first he noticed the tag number, and it had the initials of his, it was name. his name, right? And then he says he noticed that somebody was wearing a vest, a a and he thought that was weird neon vest, yeah. That but he also d- noticed the car right, he because he said it's a two hundred thousand dollar turbo Porsche. That's how he noticed it. And then that it was one of those cars that was trying to yeah get in and out of traffic right. when everyone else is stuck yeah. and really in seeming like it was in a hurry and trying to go somewhere. Yeah. So then. He says, Darren says, he had him drive him out to the parking lot at the La Fontaine Blue. Okay. Can't explain, by the way, why Darrell would pick that location. Somewhere out of the blue? Oh, because it's close to where my brother and sister live. Yeah. And Laura says, well, why not just have you get dropped off at your your dad's or your sister's? 
or Stefan's. They all live in the same neighborhood, like within blocks from each other. Right, so why take you to some random parking lot Yeah. where you have to then cut through the path in the woods? Yeah. And that's not even where he was living at the time. He was living at his dad's house at the time. So that's right. no, that's where he, that's near where he once lived a, a few right. years before, maybe so earlier in the year. He but has, he wasn't living there then. He has to put himself in the parking lot because, because the manager at La Fontaine Blue said that that was Darren standing in the parking lot. So he has to put himself in the parking right. lot. So that's why he says that's where Darrell took him and dropped him off. And he's still pacing back and forth as the witness described him, because he's looking for Wi-Fi right. once again right. to try to reach his beloved Vanessa. Right. Now, here's one thing I want to make sure that we get very clear on this. So now he has to explain how does the vest get inside the burning Porsche, right? right? As he gets out of the Porsche, Darrell drives off. Well, how did the burning vest get in there? Well, Darren says, I was angry at him for him getting me involved in this, so I took the vest off and I threw it at him. Well, so it ended up inside the Porsche, and uh, I mean, is he such? A, and, and by the way, I mean, if you've ever tried to throw um, a, a piece neon of clothing, vest, yeah, you know, like even if you're trying to throw a piece of, of dirty clothes in the laundry basket, it's not always a direct shot. It's not like throwing a ball. Yeah, you know, it it kind yeah. of doesn't move the way you right. might expect it to. But he's such a good shot that he got it through the window and onto the floorboard. And you got to think that the jury's now sitting there and they're hearing this story now for hours and they're going, they've got to be saying to themselves, okay, I mean, you can't just come right out and go, what? Right. You, you know have what I mean? to dissect it. Yeah. It's sort of like, okay, plausible. There was never anything that he said that you went, no way. Right. You know what I mean? Well, and, and on direct, Judith Pipe was very careful to lead him several times into saying he knows that people have been wrongly convicted before and that's why he acted the way he did and he knows the government can twist your words is what he said too so he's trying to put those thoughts into the minds of the jury thinking well we owe this guy the benefit of a doubt he's innocent until proven guilty and so he's Right. interjecting reasonable doubt. And we should probably talk a little bit about his demeanor because yes. Laura is incredulous and she's her hands are going up in the air and she's got her hands on her hips. And oh, she's, yeah, she was a couple of times like yeah. this or like this. And she's talking loudly. I mean, the whole trial, her voice has been very yes. even and calm and ans- asking all the questions. But this time, she takes it up a level and she's shouting at him. You know, Mr. Wint, you mean you want us to believe this, this, you know? So that's sort of what's happening in the well of the court. And and Darren keeps his composure the whole time. That's right. I never saw him get rattled. No. Not no, once. Not once. And he kept saying, he didn't say it often, but every once in a while he said, because that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And he never, though, expanded on an answer. No. He would answer yes ma'am no ma'am he always said ma'am and he would an- give his answer but he would never go any further than that answer right so we've talked about um oh the tow truck okay so he is mad he's at the parking lot he decides 
well, his brother told him the van was at 24 and K. Right. So he pulls out his phone and he types that address into his phone. Correct. But he doesn't have Wi-Fi, so he can't call anybody. Right. Remember? That's right. So then he gets into the tow truck. Well, he sees the tow truck, there, uh, right? Right, right. It, he didn't truck. call the tow truck. He, the tow truck was conveniently in the area, right? Right. That's my recollection. Yeah, Is yeah, that yours, yeah. too? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, he's got money now because Darrell's given him $300. Right. The tow truck driver wants 100 bucks for the job and agrees to take him there and agrees to lend him his phone so Darren can make some phone calls. Right, because he has his phone, but his phone doesn't work. Right. So he needs a connection to make some calls. Now, Laura really keyed in on how they got to where the van was, right? right. And some of this is still a little confusing it to me. It is a little confusing. And I, and I don't really understand. Let's see if I can find parts of it. You know, parts of it. But she, she believes that he told the tow truck driver exactly where to go. Right. Right? Uh, that he, she, he gave the tow truck driver directions on how to get there. But Darren is saying, I don't know D.C. I don't go to D.C. Right. I don't know it. He doesn't know All New I York know, Avenue. He's never been there. Even though he was pulled over on New York Avenue once. I don't know if you were there for that testimony. He was pulled over in the minivan. because dead tags. Dead tags, lights out, and unregistered. And claimed he was Stefan. That's right. He claimed he was his brother Stefan. He gave him Stefan's name and his date of birth. So he, he knows New York Avenue because that's where he got pulled over once, right? And he wants us to believe that somebody who lives right on the D.C. line never goes into D.C. Never goes in. So, again, going back to the tow truck driver, he didn't have Wi-Fi on his phone. The tow truck driver testified. This was Laura Bach. Tow truck driver said you didn't have the address. You told him how to get there. Darren says, all I know is we went to New York Avenue. I spotted the van. Then he hooked it up and towed it. I can't remember where it was parked. The tow truck driver testified that uh, he kept saying, it's got to be here. He told me it's here. So the driver kept looping around. So they were to until believe they found that it. they drove around somewhere around 24th and K yeah. until they found the tow truck. Right. And the implication here is that Laura Bach is trying to get it across to the jury that Darren knew exactly where the van was parked because he had parked it there. Darrell didn't park it there. He parked it there. Right. And she's trying to get that to the jury she's trying to make that very clear it is strange that there's no they have a lot of other traffic cameras but they don't have anything right there at 2400 pennsylvania yeah, we haven't seen K any pictures of the that van, would show where the van was how it where they would know well, the time frame. we've seen the van up on the lift of the yes, of the tow truck but right? nothing during that whole presentation of the route of the tow truck without the van and then with the van, yeah, timeline there and, and the route and the pictures yeah. on, on Bladensburg and New York Avenue, but nothing from 24th. And, I mean, that's right downtown. Well, here's, an, here's another that, part of the crazy story is why did the van have to be towed? Because Oh, I know. Darren, I have an answer for you. <laughs> Go ahead, Melanie. Okay. The reason <laughs> the van had to be towed is because she said, you know what happens when a vehicle with dead tags unregistered gets pulled over the van gets searched and there might be things in the van that you don't want police to see and so his story is not only i mean that's laura's uh, explanation for it but his explanation for it is he didn't have the oh, keys he didn't have he the didn't keys. have the keys 
But then the van shows up at the La Fontaine Blue, gets dropped off the lift, and Darren is standing there going, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? And then all of a sudden he goes, eh, let me take a look in the glove box. Oh, wow, here's my keys. Imagine that. Wow. Found the keys. Here's the keys. Darren gets in. He drives home. And that's the 14th. That's the 14th. evening when his mom saw him right around like 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. Well, yeah, that came up again yesterday. He was asked, what time did you get home? He goes, uh, I think around 5 and she goes, well, didn't your mother, uh, stepmother, uh, Pam, didn't she say six? He says, oh, maybe that, maybe so. He wasn't exact on what time he got But there. there was a big argument when he got home. Yes. Because Dennis she was, was very upset. Angry. Dennis was upset. His father, Dennis. And he was, I think he was going to kick him out and say, we're done. We are done. You got to go. Because everyone else in his family has basically <laughs> tried to bring him in and help him out. And each and every time he alienates himself from them yeah and that's when that's when laura bach was saying nobody in your family can vouch for you the only person who can vouch for you is ed and ed is dead and she's also made it very clear that he has lied to every member of his family about all sorts of things right and then they actually even brought up judith pipe brought this out on redirect as to why his family wasn't in the courtroom oh she did what did she say and uh, the excuse was that the family could testify on his behalf, and therefore they've stayed out of the courtroom. Hmm. But um, I don't think that's the case because Pam came in and testified. She could have stayed after her testimony. Typically that's allowed, right? Once right. a witness has testified, back. you can come and sit in. You're not needed anymore. Well, she didn't stay, right? And uh, George Elias, he didn't come back. He didn't stay. Uh, Godfrey, he didn't stay. Right. right? Nobody stayed. They I mean, all left. All of this. Stefan. Stefan actually got a, a, a <laughs> he got a free pass out of the courthouse, out of the oh, eyes right. of the you, reporters. I know you were trying to, to chase really, it down, but I know that bothered you. Yes, I know it, it did. did. Um, I'm looking at a couple of questions that were posted on our Facebook page. Uh, let's see here. Ed. Who is Ed? Uh, we went over that at the very beginning. Uh, very briefly, again, is Ed... Is his alibi for the 13th of May and part of the 14th. Ed is a guy that worked on his van. He lived at 16 Atlantic Street Southeast, and he claims that's where he was all day on the 13th and into the 14th, that he didn't have his phone, so he couldn't call anybody. That's who Ed is. But Ed is dead. And we have tried. Uh, Nobody has any... They never gave us Ed's last name. Yeah, we don't know. We can't verify it on our own. We can't verify any information, but... They did bring in, the defense brought in two people who could verify At Ed's the end identity. of the day, but they, they brought didn't in. they ask his full name. No, they didn't give us the full name. They just asked if they knew who Ed was. In fact, I have the names of the people here. It was uh, Connie Mobley and a man named uh, Matthew Smith, known as Smitty. Um, Smitty owns Freddy's used tires that was backing up to Ed's house. And Connie Mobley knows the family, and she knew the parents of Ed. And they both confirmed that Ed had lived at this house. They both confirmed that they knew Ed had passed, as they said. Ed is dead. Right. Any other questions, Tim? That was the big one. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, within the last it, year. Within the last year. Within the last and year, so, I mean, yeah. certainly Paul and I had questions about and they, But they also made it very clear that Ed was a drug user right yes they discredited him completely yeah he said you didn't know that he was a heroin user you didn't know he was a cocaine addict you didn't know he was a sex offender and laura bach this was i think this was one of her finer moments really when she was so incredulous she said you are so distraught you're so distraught about 
you weren't going to earn a hundred. You weren't going to earn a hundred dollars for busting your butt doing drywall all day. You were earning three hundred dollars for doing nothing, and you were so depressed about that that you didn't want to go home. You didn't want to see your family, so you wanted to go to Ed's house. And you didn't want to go borrow a phone to call somebody, right? To get out of the fix you were in, right? I mean, it was it was crazy that that's basically his. He said he was upset. Well, that's it. that's where the jury has to decide if they believe his his story. Yeah, you know, because that's what it all comes down to is, and and the jury will be told that in their instructions is what you can decide on your own um, how much weight to put in each witness's testimony. Right. There really was no, I think, in the cross examination. There was no real smoking gun. No. And I've had people ask that to me. Even Kenny Martin on our assignment desk said, I don't understand. I was waiting for some big, like... We all were. You know you did it. Admit you did it. Yeah. Where was the chasm that they could drive his story, you know, drive right through it and say, you know, and break it right apart, right? And that never came up. The only thing that he didn't have an explanation for was his DNA and how it got on the knife in the basement. Now... This was testimony we'd heard weeks before, which was testimony from the collectors of DNA inside the house who admitted that their DNA got onto some items and they didn't know how that happened. One of the uh, forensic science uh, people from the ATF, uh, his DNA got on a pair of scissors that was hanging in a closet inside the house. He doesn't know how it got there. Um, We know that a police officer who was inside the house, his DNA got onto three items, uh, items that were in the garage, right? Um, and then we had a third uh, person who had gotten her DNA onto a towel, a towel, yes, right? That was, that was one of the forensic scientists. But yeah. the point is, is that it still puts Darren Wint inside the house. But at this point, he's not denying he was in the house. No. And I thought that the defense was going to come back a little harder with questions about collection and, and uh, chain of custody and quality control. And they didn't. But maybe they don't have to. Maybe they're just going to hit that a little harder in well, their closing argument. Well, that falls right into their, you know, when they make their closing argument. That's what they're going to say. Keep in keep in mind, members of the jury, that uh, Darren says he doesn't know how his DNA got onto that knife. But we know that there were three other people inside that house whose DNA got on items and they don't know how it got there. That's what she's going to say. Another question that keeps coming up is, do we think Darrell is going to testify. Can they bring new witnesses back on rebuttal? Yes, they can. And uh, that's going to be, um, that's the big mystery here, is what is their rebuttal case? Because rebuttal testimony is very, very important because the government has the burden of proof. And since they have the burden of proof, they get the last chance to convince the jury of their case. And so they can bring in people who will testify. Now, will they bring Darrell in? Will they Will they show the interview that Darrell gave to police? I was wondering about that because we learned that yesterday. We kept saying, if he didn't testify to the grand jury, maybe he's not going to talk. Maybe he's not cooperating. But Though they, we know he was cooperating with police. He did a, a videotaped interview with the police the night that he was taken into custody and never arrested. Will they show that to the jury? Right? Do they have some kind of video evidence showing Darrell taking them to where the van was burned? 
Right, we learned that yesterday we know too. That, that he took right? them to this burn pile. He somewhere. he cooperated with the police and took them. Now, how did he know that the van was burned there? How does Darrell know that? Somebody might have helped him see. Most people believe that we know. Well, we know Darrell was involved somehow at the back end with the money laundering. Right, with buying. Yeah, he had all the cash to buy the money orders. But we have questions about when he got involved in that and how deep was he because we did see those receipts from one of the girls that said money orders were purchased on the 14th but there was no testimony about that trying to tie those to odd like they were three hundred dollars here and there as opposed to the others which were stacks of one thousand dollar money orders and it's just not clear at this point yeah I mean, are you to be, you could believe that those were just random ones that other money orders that were purchased that had nothing to do with this, as opposed to the thousand dollar money orders that did. But that's an important thing, I would think, in terms of when yeah, you start laundering the money or not. They're going to have to clear some things up. Let's quickly talk about the money because yes. this was brought up too, in that he picks this. This uh, a denomination right. of at six thousand dollars. His brother first. He said he got three hundred dollars. Right. But we know that he showed uh, Godfrey Ailing twelve hundred dollars that mm. night at the gym. Yeah. Before he asked him to help him burn his van, so he has cash. We saw him on the Walmart video peeling off wads of bills. Right. Now he claims that it was six thousand dollars that Darrell gave him. Okay. And as Laura Bach pointed out. It's very convenient now, after you know all of the evidence, that you've come up with this $6,000 figure because it all adds up with the money that he left Vanessa in New York, the money he gave to the immigration attorney, which was $1,100, the money he spent on shoes and the hotel, and the money that he gave to the cab driver to get back to D.C., it all adds up to $6,000, okay? And then Laura Box said to him yesterday, so he so Darrell gives you six thousand dollars for his van. Your van isn't worth six thousand dollars. It's barely worth a thousand dollars. And and Darren's response to that was, I didn't really care. I wanted the money. You know, well, if Darrell was going to give me the money, I was going to take it. I'm going to take it, and I'm and I'm going to lie for him. If the police talk to me. That's oh yeah, he, he said. already he, said that he was going to lie to the he police. He said he was willing to. That was his first thought that he was going to lie to police. Right. How do you beat a lie detector test is one of the things that he had Googled. And the Google searches for 10 uh, cities for fugitives and five places to go where uh, there's no U.S. extradition treaty. All of that was because he knows that people get wrongfully convicted. That was his reasoning. But he also was searching that uh, places to go and hide other countries. But Laura Bach also pointed out to him, well, you didn't have an ID, did you? No. You didn't have a passport, did you? No. You were waiting for your green card application to come back, weren't you? Wouldn't you need that to leave the country? And Darren had to admit that that was correct. He couldn't leave the country without that stuff. He hadn't thought that part out very well. She also pointed out that's the reason why he couldn't get steady work, because he had no identification. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the autopsies, because I know that that was something that people had asked us about. Um, that was pretty tough. I wasn't in there for that. Yeah. You heard all of that I, testimony. I heard of that. I heard that. And I also talked with, you know, as we said, the other reporters that are there. We kind of debrief each other sometimes if someone had to step out. Yeah. I know that the testimony was really tough when it came to Amy, Philip, Vera. They 
were stabbed many, many times. One of the things that left an impression on my colleagues, they said that Amy's stab wounds, Amy was stabbed eight times. And the stab wounds across her neck, they said looked like a necklace, like boom, boom, boom. Three, precision across, which seems really odd. And then- Well, keep in mind that if you believe all of the evidence that we've heard so far, that she had to be killed very quickly, right? Right. Because she was on the phone with right. the sprinkler man weird. at like one twelve in the afternoon, and the fire was reported a little more than 10 minutes after that. Right. So that, that's the odd thing, is that the time, how long does it take to kill four people? Yeah, and then, I mean, and then get it, out of there. So because the medical examiner wasn't able to be clear no. as to when people were killed. Right. right. The medical examiner could never say yeah. the exact time of death, even yeah. though the the defense was trying to pinpoint it at two hours back from the fire because of Riger in the bodies. But the medical examiner testified that sometimes that can set in quicker than usual. Normally, it takes about two hours for Riger Bordas to set in, but in this case, it could have set in quicker because heat can also cause it to happen faster. Also, keep in mind that uh, the, the investigators didn't have the benefit of being able to examine the crime scene as it was. That's right. Because Normally they take photographs the of the bodies on right, the scene. The firefighters pulled the bodies out of there. So they had to go back on the recollection of what the firefighters saw when they came in there, which they also saw in a very sooty, dark right. uh, situation with a fire going. Right. So we know that Sava was, had multiple stab wounds in his back. One in his upper back went through his neck. Whew. Wow. Also evidence of blunt force trauma, multiple skull fractures, bruising on the side of his face consistent with a round, large, heavy object. There was that bloody baseball bat. Right. Amy had been stabbed eight times, three times, as I mentioned, in the neck. Would have caused significant blood loss, skull fractures, blunt force injuries. Um, Vera, they believe she was actually dead at the house. We had been told that they she, thought Her body she, was pulled out, and there were signs of life because they actually transported her to the right, hospital. But the medical, but they said, the medical examiner said that's that interesting. Was I had not heard that. Not the case. So the medical examiner said that Vera was dead inside the house. Yes. Yeah. That now, she had the, a. Let's see. Uh, keep in mind, for those of you who haven't been in the courtroom, that there are monitors that. Yes. So everybody in the courtroom could see these photographs. Right. It was. It wasn't like they were just showing them to the jury. My colleagues told me that I'm lucky I didn't see those, that they were pretty horrible. Mm. And also a moment, uh, this was from my, our friend Megan Clardy at WTOP, said that they pulled out Savas's bloody shirt that had mm. four slices in the back of it. And I saw um, a Bill Hennessy's artist rendering of it. She said when they pulled it out, there was an odor that emitted from it of decay that filled the courtroom. Oof. So that was pretty rough. Wow. And she said it looked like maybe Laura Bach wasn't expecting that either. Yeah. There were there have been a lot of questions about Philip. Right. You know, this whole idea that they were tortured. Yeah. Because and, that, and look, this is this is hard yeah. to talk about, but I think yeah. people have had questions about this, so I, I definitely want to address it. Mm -hmm. Whether or not his limbs were severed 
And it does not appear that that was the case. Yeah, that was one of the big mysteries. Right. This was one thing that bugged me very much at the very start of the the investigation is that media, some media, some reporters were claiming that they were tortured. And and, and I was saying to myself, well, what evidence evidence do you have of that? What evidence do you have they were tortured? And I don't know that we've even heard that, have we? No. we. I did not hear any evidence of torture, except yeah. if you want to talk about psychological torture. But it appears that the stab wounds on the adults would have been fatal, immediately fatal. Mm. Now, when you talk about Philip, yeah. there was a question. Because the firefighter said he went to grab for his body and he didn't have any feet. So maybe that's where people thought, oh, someone must have, what happened to his feet? What happened was that fire was so hot that his extremities burned off. Oh. It burned off his feet. Wow. And and I mm. also talked with fire investigators that told me that can happen. When a body gets so charred like that, it becomes hard and fragile. Mm. So any kind of movement can also, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, separate th- those parts of the body. And so they had co- they collected bits and pieces of bone from the fire debris to try to put it all back together. We did find out, however, that Philip had been stabbed three times mm-hmm. across the lower torso. One stab wound seven inches deep and cut almost all the way through his body. Oh, poor but kid. again, the question, was he dead or alive before he was set on fire? The medical examiner cannot say. All she could say was that those stab wounds were not immediately fatal mm. unless he'd been there for a long time they wouldn't cause someone like a like a cutting through your your main arteries to bleed out immediately yeah so and uh, we should also point out though that, that that is apparently where the fire started yes oh right? clearly clearly because that's where the fire the started the fire never extended into the room where the three others were found it was starting to extend through the closet, closet yeah there was some fire damage mostly smoke damage right. not so much fire damage right. in there right so that really leaves us now with do we think the jury is convinced well, you know, I've been watching them. You've been watching them. Yeah. They're very attentive. They're, they're, uh, uh, I've seen juries <laughs> in the past where you can actually look over them. People are actually asleep. So, But this jury is sitting there. They're furiously writing notes at times. They're very much paying close, of atten- pl- close attention. There's one woman in the front that I watch. She goes back and forth like she's watching oh, a I tennis saw her match. yesterday, too. <laughs> right? Yes. She's back and forth. You know, she's looking at... She's looking at Darren. She's looking at Laura. Darren, Laura, back yes. and forth. Yes, I saw her too. Very, yeah. very much. And then there's another that? juror, a male, who sits in the front, and when he hears something he doesn't believe, you can see it you right on his, his face. face. Oh, yeah. There, I believe there have been several times where yeah. Jeffrey Stein has completely lost him. Where yeah. He just looks at him like, He looks at him with this really? incredulous smile on his face. Really? Are you, you kidding this? me? Yeah. There was also a moment yesterday where one of the jurors laughed out loud. Yes. Because yes. Laura Bach was trying to talk to Darren about, I don't even remember exactly what it was. Uh, what, no, the laugh I heard was, um, wasn't it the, uh, the man with, who had seen the Porsche? Out on the on the, uh, oh well they were they were chuckling at that too but this yeah. was during Darren's testimony and it was uh, a point where Darren was saying he didn't understand can you please rephrase the question oh when she was kind of mocking Darren's 
take that, oh, your brother Darrell, he brought the pizza to you. He opened the box for you. He took the pizza out and handed it to you. He opened and closed all the doors for you, right? You didn't open and close any doors. And you lost your phone second time in 24 hours. Is that normal for you? And he kept saying, well, I don't understand the question. And she said, don't worry about it. <laughs> and that one of the jurors started like laughing out loud. Yeah. So I think when you hear yeah. things like that, and you know, I don't, I don't know much about jury science, and I would love yeah, to talk to either. someone to say or to figure out sort of how can you tell when the jury is with you. I'll tell you one thing I've learned over all these years that don't I've been guess. doing this: do not ever guess on what the jury's going to do. Right. Ever. Yeah. Never, because if you guess. You're, you're crazy. Gonna, you're going to be wrong. You know, you'll hear that from a hundred different defense attorneys. Don't ever try and predict what a jury's going to do. Did you get any sense of how much longer the trial is going to go? We've been told two months, but they, they went through the prosecution They've gone through it pretty quicker, quick. Plus, I thought we'd have more from the defense. And I, are they done? Did the defense No, rest? Judith Pipe said that uh, she does have a couple more witnesses to put on Monday. But, but we I, don't know who? No. And I think she's going to rest at that point. And then uh, Laura will be p able so to put on uh, the rebuttal case. So we may see the rebuttal case m uh, Monday afternoon, and then they'll go to closing arguments. So maybe we'll see closings on Tuesday. End of this week, at least maybe by this Tuesday. week, you think. Like if, if, you had to, if you had to guess, we'd guess probably closing uh, the arguments. The jury may have this case by Wednesday, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Depending on how much they how have How quick the they can move. How much uh, one thing this judge has been doing is that uh, she's been giving this jury plenty of breaks. Yes. They're not overworked. Right. They're getting breaks during the day. They're getting a long lunch break. Most Do of they get an afternoon break, too? They get an afternoon break. And then lots of times she's letting them go at 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon. So Which is good for you, so you can get your Yeah, then your you can get out and try on. and get it on. <laughs> exactly. But, uh, yeah, so uh, she, uh, there. I wouldn't say that this jury was overworked. Um, plus, they don't sit on Fridays, so they're only doing it four days a week. Right. So um, it's going to be an interesting end and, and you, to this. And then you have to wonder how long is it going to take the jury to return a verdict. Are they going to be that kind of jury that goes through meticulously and wants to reread all of the evidence or do they know right away what they want to do? Usually they don't they don't do well, that. They want to feel like they've given everybody their attention and weight and and I've heard some juries what they'll do is they'll pick a foreman right away and then the foreman may ask right away, "How many of you believe he's guilty for hands?" right? And then Maybe they'll get 11 hands. Maybe they'll get 12. Maybe they'll get five. Who knows? But then they're going to start to sit and, and listen to everything. Now, with this jury, because Darren Wint was so composed on the stand and couldn't be rattled, I think they're going to have a lot to think about. And uh, But you can't predict a jury, so I'd be nuts to try and predict what well, they're going to do. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see what we have to talk about on this podcast next Friday. Yeah. But that does it for us this Friday. We want to thank you guys for joining us once again on our Facebook Live feed. And you can download this podcast and subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, on iTunes, and also on Audio Boom. So for now, for the Mansion Murders Trial Podcast, I'm Melanie Alnwick, Paul Wagner. Thanks once again. And we look forward to another interesting See you week. next week.